In 1 Nephi chapters 8 through 10, the prophet Lehi gives his account of a vision that would shape the perspective of his descendants for a thousand years. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. So glad to have you with me on Gospel Doctrine. This this is a podcast where we discuss the lessons of the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week's lesson is Book of Mormon number three, First Nephi chapters eight through ten. Come and partake of the fruit. As always, if you have a question about any subject, scriptural or otherwise, for which you want a scriptural answer, email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. We have a number of questions this week, so I'll go through them as quick as I can. Uh, first of all, I've had a few questions over the last couple of months about transcriptions. People asking, are you ever going to offer transcriptions on your website? Uh, first of all, I should say I've, I've been a little bit neglectful of, of the Gospel Doctrine website, uh, and I've meant to scan my notes at least and put them up there, but what I would really love to do would be to transcribe the podcast and put it up there. This would have a number of benefits. Uh, it would allow search engines to index the content that we provide, and it would allow deaf members of the church and deaf-interested people to read what we provide rather than uh, being unable to access it in any way. had a couple of people volunteer to provide transcription for a single episode and I just want to say we're totally open to that uh, and very I would very gratefully accept that kind of thing if you're interested in transcriptions or you would like to provide transcription uh, then please contact me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com so that's uh, that's a little notification something we're interested in moving into all right uh, Michael from Sandy asks a question and uh, it's a it's a long paragraph that he kind of talks about uh, this this question, so I'm going to paraphrase. But he's basically wondering about the authority, the priesthood authority that Le- Lehi took with him into the wilderness and into the new world. Uh, and then Jeremy also asked the question, uh, and I'm going to read this question from Jeremy. Uh, he, st- he says, Mark, I heard a comment today that it was okay to sacrifice as long as you were three days away from Jerusalem. What do you know about that? Uh, so these two questions, I actually found an answer to both in the same article. And you may have heard me mention before Dr. David Rolf Seeley. He is a BYU religion professor, and he was my Near Eastern Studies professor when I was uh, living and studying at BYU Jerusalem years ago. Uh, m- a man for whom I have immense respect, and I just loved, and in fact, everybody loved uh, going to his class. Um, I had the good fortune of signing up for the Isaiah elective, and so he was also the Isaiah teacher and learned a ton. And I found an article by Dr. Seeley called Lehi's Altar and Sacrifice in the Wilderness. So I'm going to paraphrase his answers, but uh, if you should care to read more, then just Google that title and his name, David Rolf Seeley, Lehi's Altar and Sacrifice in the Wilderness, and you can read a a lot of interesting content. Uh, So the quick answer is that, first of all, Lehi, it doesn't say explicitly in the Book of Mormon what his authority was in the priesthood, but we have information in the Book of Alma about the fact that there were 
priests, they're called high priests, but they're, the way that the high priests are described is very clearly a high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood and not a high priest in the, in the Aaronic priesthood sense. So uh, to clarify that a little bit, in the temple in Jerusalem before the birth of Christ, there were priests and Levites providing sacrificing services in the temple, administering those ordinances, and they were all Aaronic priesthood holders. And the high priest was not a high priest as we know them today, like a, the, an office in the Melchizedek priesthood. He was more like the priest's quorum president. He was somebody who was the leader of the priests, which was an Aaronic priesthood office. Now, the high priests that are described in the book of Alma more closely resemble what we know today as a high priest because they're, they're high priests forever uh, ordained before the foundation of the world. You can find that description in the book of Alma, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you to where to find it. But it is plain that the Nephites enjoyed for generations the Melchizedek priesthood. It's also been said by a number of uh, LDS apostles and prophets that the ancient prophets in the Old Testament, not the general population, but the prophets themselves, the prophet Elijah, the prophet Moses, uh, and many others, obviously, uh, they held and probably either passed on from prophet to prophet, from father to son, or perhaps uh, in the way that Jesus Christ received some of his keys by tr translated beings, they passed these this priesthood authority and perhaps the keys from prophet to prophet. And these prophets in the Old Testament did indeed hold the Melchizedek priesthood. And Lehi being one of them, even though we don't find him in the Old Testament, he was very much an Old Testament prophet. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. He's in the, he's in the tradition of an Old Testament prophet. And therefore, uh, it seems very, very likely that he held the uh, Melchizedek priesthood, which does comprehend entirely, even an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood holds all of the authority, the ability to officiate in all the ordinance of the Aaronic priesthood. And so as a Melchizedek priesthood holder, he would have had the authority to perform temple sacrifices and even construct an altar. Now, the, the question about, was it okay to sacrifice? So first of all, the uh, there is in the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 12, uh, a proscription against uh, against performing any sacrifice that wasn't in the Lord's prescribed place. Now, that prescri prescribed place changed over time. Obviously, when the Israelites were traveling through the Exodus, that was in front of Mo the Tabernacle of Moses, later on in Shiloh, uh, Samaria, other places. And then finally, there was a temple constructed in Jerusalem, and then that was the only place at which sacrifices were permitted. And in the book of Deuteronomy, it actually says, once the the Lord's house is established, then you shall bring all your sacrifices there. And there are even some who believe that the ancient Jews would have uh, thought that they had to take every animal there to be killed, even if they were, even if it was in a secular way. And then that that particular uh, regulation or commandment was reduced because obviously they can't take all the entire nation cannot take all their animals to be killed by priests. And so there are a number of theories around how strict they were with this, uh, exactly who could perform a sacrifice and where did it have to be done and how often could they do it? Um, did everyone really have to travel to Jerusalem for every sacrifice? And uh, 
So Dr. Seeley points out, first of all, he, he makes the point that I just talked about, about Lehi's Melchizedek priesthood authority. And then he, he points out that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's one particular item called the Temple Scroll, not part of our scriptures, but it, uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are records from the Essenes, which is a first century uh, Jew, Jewish separatist sect. And so this temp, this temple scroll would suggest that it was a common belief that if you were more than three days journey from Jerusalem, then the Lord didn't expect you to go to Jerusalem for your sacrifices. And under certain conditions, you could have your own altar there. There does seem to be evidence that there were Jewish settlements performing temple sacrifices in Egypt, um, east, east of Israel in the former Babylonian Empire, other places where there were high Jewish populations. There were temple traditions in those places, and whether that was sanctioned or not uh, is is a matter of some debate and uncertainty. So that should answer your question there, Jeremy. Um, it is not known whether it's okay to sacrifice if you're more than three days from Jerusalem, but we can presume, without evidence in the Book of Mormon, we can presume that Lehi wasn't acting against the will of the Lord, and therefore uh, the Book of Mormon itself is the evidence that if you're far enough away from Jerusalem, or perhaps the Lord specifically commanded Lehi, then you can, uh, you could at that time construct, and if you have the right authority, you could construct an altar and perform sacrifices. Uh, and and we know, we're not sure exactly the nature of the sacrifices. It, it could be that he was authorized to perform some and not all sacrifices. We do know that when he reached the New World, the Promised Land, uh, they did construct a temple. Thank you for those questions. Uh, Chad asks the question, Listening to the last episode, I thought about Nephi and his courage and faith in stating, I will go and do. However, when they get outside of the city of Jerusalem, he isn't willing to raise his hand and step up to go talk with Laban. Instead, it came to pass when he'd gone up to the land of Jerusalem, I and my brethren consulted with one another, and we cast lots, who of us should go into the house of Laban. I'm sure on the journey, there was discussion on how or who would go to Laban or if they should go together. Why was Nephi now willing to put that commandment uh, aside and also leave it to his brother Laman, who was not fully committed? Good question, Chad. And I, I do think that if you look at it in hindsight, it did turn out the best possible way. If Nephi had decided or volunteered or commanded whatever attitude he took, that he was going to be the first one to try and then failed, which in all likelihood would have happened, Laman could have blamed it on him forever. But the fact that Laman was sent to go first meant that he couldn't blame anyone and, and he would be willing to side with his brothers in blaming Laban for the, their failure to get the plates. That being said, uh, if you look up Lot's casting of in the Bible dictionary in your LDS scriptures, you'll see uh, a reference to the, the beliefs that were held around the casting of Lot's. And the belief generally was that if, because it was random, that God would put his hand in and you could make a decision that way and know the will of God. The The scripture mentioned there is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So that was a common Hebrew belief that if you were to cast lots, the, the equivalent of maybe rolling the dice today to choose who 
uh, it's almost like a role-playing game. <laughs> I, I just thought of that. I, I don't know if that's a little irrelig- or uh, irreverent. I hope not. Um, but yeah, they thought it totally appropriate to have a random chance to determine the outcome, and they believed that God would be would involve himself in the casting of lots in order to make important decisions. So uh, thank you for that question. Finally, Janelle has a, a point to make about my uh, discussion on the killing of Laban. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the fact that uh, it's not easy to reconcile what the decision that Nephi made to take the life of Laban, especially for someone in our culture. And so what Janelle points out is that uh, she says, I listened to the Meridian magazine, Come Follow Me podcast. The uh, first Nephi 1 to 7 lesson has a little more information about Nephi killing Laban. I'm curious to know your take on this insight with what you know about ancient culture. I listened to that podcast and what they said was they they uh, related the the account of Joseph Fielding McConkie and a lesson that he taught with American students and Near Eastern students in attendance. And the American students were having a tough time like I have in the past. And uh, when the account was read about Nephi taking the life of Laban, then they had a discussion about it. They're saying, man, yeah, he shouldn't have killed him in cold blood like that. And Dr. McConkie noticed the the, uh, Near Eastern students were getting a little unsettled. And so he asked them what they were feeling. And they said, we can't believe it took this long for Nephi to kill Laban. And so the point was, you know, in our culture, he's stolen, he's threatened his life. He's stolen his goods. Uh, Laban clearly deserves to die. And and it's totally within our culture's norms that he would, he would die. And especially in the ancient world, even more so. Uh, So the point is, the point that I made last week was that there might be a there are obviously exceptions for the uh, the proscription against killing someone. Um, the The wording, the Hebrew wording in the commandment, "Thou shalt not kill," is actually "Thou shalt not murder." So, when is killing murder? Well, we have our answer today, and they may have had a different answer then. Uh, our exceptions to that are obviously war and self defense, and it may have been that Nephi. Nephi's culture clearly defined that it was that it was okay, and the only reason that he balked at killing Laban was because he had a personal, uh, to his credit, he had a personal distaste for violence. He did not want to commit that violence, but he felt justified in doing so, and he still didn't want to do it. So that is the point that was made in that uh, discussion. I appreciate that insight. So thank you for that, Janelle, and thank you for all of those questions. They're wonderful questions. Some of them will shed light a little bit on what we're going to talk about today. So without further ado, we'll get right into the lesson material for this week, and that is First uh, Nephi chapters 8 through 10. What's interesting about uh, considering chapter 8 without reading chapter 11 is that you get the, the vision of Lehi without the interpretation. So when I first uh, read the lesson material uh, this week, and first of all, before we get any further, I should apologize for my voice. I've lost my voice. Uh, I just got back from my honeymoon this week and I happened to be on a very very adjusted time schedule jet lagged and so uh, I was very unable to sleep most of the week and so I think I got a little bit sick because of lack of sleep but some of you may enjoy a more raspy voice uh, but I don't know send me your comments with that if you're interested in that so anyway I apologize for my uh, the fact that my voice is very raspy all right so I was I was 
actually a, a little bit confused that the lesson was set up th that we would read. In one lesson, we would read the vision of Lehi, but it would be a whole other lesson before we'd actually read the vision of Nephi where he gets the interpretation of Lehi's dream. And now having studied this, I'm, I'm really grateful it's organized this way. The reason is I, I asked myself the question, the given the fact that these two visions are separated, even though they're the same vision, I thought, all right, let's imagine that I was reading the Book of Mormon for the first time. And I come upon Lehi's dream, and I don't know the coming interpretation that Nephi is going to experience the same dream and get all the meaning of it. So let's say that I was a scholar studying the Book of Mormon, having only read the Bible. Or better yet, let's say that I was Laman and Lemuel, and I was hearing from my father his account of the dream. So I live, I'm an ancient Israelite, and I, I live in this time and I hear this dream, what am I going to think? How will I receive it? Because this is really, it should be our goal when we're, when we are studying the scriptures, we should first ask ourselves, how did the people who first received this word of God, how did they feel? How did they understand it? So I have some ideas on this. And the first place we're going to go is to the book of Genesis chapter one. Uh, so I'm going to relate to you some of the aspects of Lehi's dream, and then we'll, we'll get some insight on it from the Old Testament. The first thing that happens in, in Lehi's dream is that he finds himself in a dark place. And this, this place is a wasteland. It's, uh, there's no one around. He describes it as a dark and dreary wilderness. Now, the word wilderness means that nobody lives there, right? It, it, it may mean that it's unfit for human habitation. One thing we know about where Lehi was at the time, or, or we can guess, is that he was in the Arabian Peninsula, perhaps the northern part. They were on the borders of the Red Sea, so there are two places they could be, right? They could be in, in Egypt or on the Sinai, or they could be in Arabia. And uh, it seems likely, given the, the accounts that they traveled in a generally south-southeast direction, as he says later, uh, scholars have done this work, and, and it's generally believed that they traveled along the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula down to what would be present-day Yemen, and then launched from the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, and that's where they built their ship. Now, today, this is very much a desert, and it probably was the same back then. So, uh, given that, this is not just a wilderness like a jungle. This is a wilderness where it's really hard to eke out a living. It's really hard to find water. So Lehi is physically, before he goes to sleep that night, he's already in a wilderness. Now in his dream, he finds himself in a dark and dreary wilderness. So wilderness is wild. It's unfit for human habitation. There's no light in his dream. And uh, so that's where he starts. That's the starting point. He sees a man. The man is dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The world before God creates it is formless, without form and void, as it says in the Bible. That has, that, the Hebrew phrase that is translated that way has a particular history behind it. The Hebrew phrase is tohu vavohu, which the word va means and or but. And so there are a number of ways that this phrase can be translated. The way that it is translated has given rise to, among some, to the belief that the world was created ex nihilo, which means from nothing. 
because it was formless and void, meaning completely, uh, it was space, basically. There was no matter there. Uh, but this this phrase, tohu vavohu, it, it has a rhyme to it. It's, uh, it's, it's sort of poetic, and it means it means empty, and it also means, it can mean uncertain. It can mean chaotic, and it can mean uncertain. So the point is there was confusion there. And what God did was he came in and he, oppo- he imposed order upon the chaos. And, he, and uh, as, as Latter-day Saints believe, that he organized these materials, right? He organized a world out of the materials that he was given. God did. And that was, that was the form that creation took. So if you, you interpret tohu vavohu not to mean that it was completely empty space, but that it was disorganized matter, it was chaos, and that God imposed order upon it. And then the other part of uh, the, the void part of it could mean that it was empty. It was, it was not currently fit for, to be used for habitation. That's, that's one way of interpreting that phrase. And so it means basically it's a wasteland, and wasteland means that it's going to waste, that people can't currently use it. And God rendered it habitable. He rendered it suitable. And when he looked at it afterwards, he called it good. And good meant that it was, it was suitable for the purposes of God, which was that humans were going to dwell there. So that's an interesting way to look at uh, Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. And specifically the phrase tohu vavohu. So understanding that and understanding that Laman and Lemuel and Sariah and Nephi and Sam before Nephi's vision, they had this perspective. Everything uh, in their scriptures pointed to one of two places. I, I shouldn't say everything, but the vast majority of the Hebrew prophets, when they had a vision, it pointed to one or two places. It was either Genesis chapter one or it was Exodus chapter 15, where the children of Israel are leaving the land of Egypt and they're fleeing across the Red Sea, they're going into the into the wilderness, and they're wandering around. They're going to Sinai. So these are the two important spiritual journeys that ancient Israelites went on, and it's referred to again and again in the scripture. So we find ourselves, when we find ourselves in Lehi's dream, in a place that resembles one of those occurrences, we should take note, and we should realize that this is how they're going to receive it. So Lehi begins his dream in a place that is very much tohu vavohu, which is formless and void. It is chaos, and it is unsuitable for human habitation. Uh, One biblical scholar, somebody I I admire a lot, uh, named Tim Mackey, he has uh, put forward a quote, and I don't think he came up with this translation, but he's put forward a quote in his podcast a number of times which is wild and waste, and it, it preserves the kind of the poetic. It's not, it doesn't rhyme the way tohu vavohu does, but it, it does have alliteration. And it preserves kind of the idea that order and habitability are imposed on this, on this chaotic place. So wild and waste is the translation we'll use in this lesson. So that's where Lehi finds himself. And, and then what does God say? God says, let there be light. The first thing that that uh, Lehi encounters is a man in a white robe. And so we can presume because Lehi sees the color of his robe, we can presume he's some sort of luminous being. 
there's an interesting video that the church has done a fantastic job of filming or dramatizing the events in First Nephi, and they're releasing these videos one at a time. There's a magnificent video that recounts the story of the uh, of this vision of Lehi, and uh, among the other stories that we're that we're discussing. And the church has also, interestingly enough, released uh, an augmented reality app where uh, they take the footage from the video and you can look th- into your phone and then impose the, the dreary waste and the, the uh, what do you call it, the, the great and spacious building. You can, you can s- impose those images on uh, whatever your phone's camera is seeing to get a perspective about what Lehi was looking at. So that's kind of an interesting app you can download on your phone. Um, so anyway, so Lehi finds himself in, in this very much a Genesis chapter one situation, the, and then it's almost as if someone has said, let there be light, but he doesn't immediately find himself in Eden, right? The, the creation quote unquote, doesn't happen instantaneously. Uh, instead Lehi finds himself wandering for hours. It says in verse eight of, of first Nephi chapter eight, after I had traveled for the space of many hours in darkness, I began to pray unto the Lord that he would have have mercy on me according to the multitude of his tender mercies. And it came to pass after I had prayed unto the Lord, I beheld a large large and spacious field. So first thing that that Lehi encounters is a waste, then a man in a white robe, then a field. And then he beholds a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Uh, My wife asked me an interesting question as we were reading this. She said, how did he know? Without eating it, how did he know that it was going to make him happy? This is an important question, right? And so the the first, the, the surface answer is, well, he knew it in the same way that you know anything that you know in a dream. Uh, you, you don't know how you know things. The knowledge just comes to you and it feels like it's obvious. So that's one answer. We don't know if that's the real case or if that he had some... Uh, you know, this is a, a revealed dream. This is actually a vision, not just a normal dream. So it may be that it was revelation from God that it was desirable to make one happy. Uh, my deeper answer is, later on, there are people who choose not to eat of the fruit, either because they already ate it and they're ashamed, or because they choose never to go unto it. And so therefore, it's not desirable for everyone it was only desirable for Lehi and the people who agreed with him. And that's an important aspect of this dream, which is that the fruit is desirable to make one happy, but that there's an element of choice involved in whether it does it is desirable. Uh, in, in any case, he sees a tree, and then he sees a river, and then he sees a great and spacious building across the river. So these are the aspects of the dream. And, uh, and, and a little bit later, he sees a path leading to the tree from the field, and the path has a rod of iron, and then a mist rolls in, and a mist of darkness. Now, these are all, th- these are all images from the, from the creation, and they're also images from the Exodus. Isn't, and this is very interesting, all right? So a lot of you are probably reading this in a... Uh, especially those of you who grew up in the church and have been studying these chapters since primary, you're probably reading this in a Latter-day Saint context. And what I'm trying to 
to do is to shift you into an Old Testament context as you read this and just pretend that you don't already know the interpretation you've been taught all your lives and read this from the perception of somebody who grew up in ancient Jerusalem. The the contemporary prophets of Lehi that are most well-known are Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Even though they wouldn't have written everything, um, certainly Lehi and his family didn't have access to the writings of Ezekiel. Uh, but it was it, the point I'm making is that Ezekiel is a product of the same culture that gave birth to Lehi and his family. And they did have access to some of the writings of Jeremiah. In fact, they're on the brass plates, not all of them, but some of them. And those, the writings of those two prophets are also allegorical, and they're also, uh, you can find evidence that they are influenced, they, and they want to influence the people for whom they're teaching, for whom they're receiving the revelations. They want to influence them by images from the Exodus and from the creation. So let's, let's analyze this in this context, right? Let's talk about the vision of Lehi in the context of the creation. So after, um, after, he, after the Lord says, let there be light, a certain period of time passes, and then finally he sees a tree that is desirable to make one happy. And when he comes unto the tree, eats the fruit, now he's in an Eden state. Now, um, if, if you're looking at this as a creation narrative, he is on the seventh day. He's after the seventh day, right? The creation is now complete. And man has the run of the garden, and he can eat all of the fruits of the garden freely. Now, there's another context we can read this in, which is after the fall, man has already proven that he is not equal to keeping God's commandments. And so he's been separated from God. But God is willing to bring us back into his presence. And the people that Lehi observes from this time forward are kind of uh, their stand-ins for the, the people of Israel as a whole. Sometimes they are willing to be enticed by the Spirit of the Lord to do what's right. And much like the ancient temple, much like the tabernacle of Moses, which later became the temple in Jerusalem, uh, if you remember the structure of that edifice was first the outer court, which had its altar, then a veil and the holy place. And the holy place had a number of, had some furnishings in there, and it also was decorated in a, in a style reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. And then another veil, a double veil this time, and inside that, a smaller place, the Holy of Holies. These, in, in modern terms, these three places or situations or rooms, they represented the three kingdoms of glory. And the priest, the progress that the priest made in the course of a sacrifice ordinance represented carrying, especially on the Day of Atonement, represented carrying the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, back from the world they lived in, the fallen world, their fallen state, into a state of union with God, undoing along the way the effects of the fall, the spiritual effects of the fall. And you can see all of those elements in the, in the story that, that Lehi is relating about his dream. There are people who follow this pathway back out of the lone and dreary waste across the mist of darkness, which is the, uh, the death that occurred to Adam and Eve when they were ejected from the Garden of Eden, and the fall is being reversed from them as they go into this temple building, the Holy of Holies, the Tree of Life. Now, 
it's interesting because we call this the tree of life vision, but Lehi does not name it as such. It it's not until chapter 11 that that Nephi tells his brothers the tree represents the tree of life. Now, the tree of life it was a tree in the garden of Eden that would provide eternal life, meaning uh if 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 separation from God was death, then the the tree of life meant togetherness forever, eternal togetherness with God. And to the point that when Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden, the tree of life had to be guarded so that they couldn't take partake of it because they'd lost that blessing. They had changed the fact that God once gave them permission to eat every every fruit of every tree in the garden. And that, that permission was revoked and rescinded. And in fact, a, a, an angel was set to guard the way so that they could never reach that tree of life again. That was the nature of the fall. And now Lehi is showing his descendants, his, those, those people and the descendants of Ishmael and Zoram. He's showing all the people that are with him in the wilderness that God has provided a way to return to that tree of life. Now, this is the same vision that every prophet has. Uh, they're, the, they're talking about a time in which God will bring his children together and give them a, a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. So the tree of life is both the, uh, the, the Eden state that we all want to return to, it's the holy of holies in the temple, and it's the final state of the, the creation of God when he renews everything in the presence of his Messiah. This would have been the context in which if, if Laman and Lemuel, we don't know exactly how religious they were, how learned they were in the scriptures, but if they were up on their uh, Old Testament, on their five books of Moses and on the, the prophets that had come since, uh, then they would have been very much receiving that in this way, that, that their father is having a vision that is quite typical of an Old Testament prophet, which shows that God it wants to bring his children back, that there has been some sort of separation and God wants to undo it. And he wants to provide a way, but people have to choose it. So that is the, that's the basic outlines of how we can receive this vision if we don't have Nephi's interpretation. We don't need to hear specifically that the fruit of the tree is the love of God. The fruit of the tree is eternal life and the tree itself represents the new creation, the new Jerusalem. And that's enough. Like that, that's close enough, I should say. Now, it, Nephi's um, Nephi's interpretation we'll discuss next time. It does indeed add a lot of insight, but um, but it's a new. I, what I kind of want to want to say about it, how to contrast them, is it's very much a New Testament sort of perspective on these on this allegory. And Lehi's vision is very much an Old Testament perspective. The teachings are the same, and the the message is the same, that we need to repent, we need to follow God, but the the method of teaching and the images used, the way they can be understood, is almost like the difference between the Old Testament and the New. I thought that was very interesting, and I would not have had that insight had these two visions been part of the same lesson the way they always have for me in the past. So I was really grateful about that. Now, uh, I talked a little bit earlier about how the perspective to see that the tree is desirous, the fruit of the tree is desirous to make one happy. I realized that's a choice 
And what it is, is a narrative. Now let's talk a little bit about what a narrative is. A narrative is an interpretation that we as people impose upon the, the world around us to better understand it. So, uh, for example, your child goes to school, uh, her friends don't say hello to her that day. She imposes a narrative on what's going on. Oh, we, we got in a fight over a boy and they're mad at me and they're shutting me out. So the facts are somebody didn't say hi to her in the halls. The narrative becomes the they're mad at her and she has assumed the reason, right? And I, I'm not basing this on anything real. Uh, that's just the first thing that came into my head. But we all do this. We all impose narratives on the facts that we encounter in our world. And the vision of Lehi is no different. And in fact, it's explicit in the vision of Lehi that there is a narrative there and not everyone shares it. And this is important. This is an important lesson that will be repeated throughout the Book of Mormon because the narrative that Lehi embraces is that the tree is desirable to make him happy. And therefore, when he looks over and he sees this great and spacious building and everyone in there, we're all sharing as we're going through this this story that Lehi is telling. We're sharing his narrative and we think, oh, those terrible people in the great and spacious building. How could they point, how could they be in the attitude of mocking and pointing fingers at those who are partaking of the tree? But uh, I want to give you a little bit more perspective of someone from the great and spacious building because I think it'll help us to put it in modern terms. So I, I tried, I sat down and I tried to come up with a competing narrative. And so this, this is going to be an imperfect effort, but this is, this is the best I could come up with uh, in the time that I spent on this. So imagine Instead of, a, instead of a field and instead of a tree and instead of a river, instead of a rod of iron, a great and spacious building, imagine that you're on a chessboard and the chessboard, instead of being an eight by eight chessboard, it extends forever in all directions or it extends uh, until you can't see any farther in all directions. And you happen to be a chess piece on this chessboard and everyone you know is also on the chessboard. And you, sometimes you're a pawn on the chessboard. And sometimes you're a king for whom other people will sacrifice their lives to keep you, uh, to keep you in the situation where you want to be in. And, in. and sometimes you're a queen where you can, you have power to move around and accomplish your goals and to take other pieces, etc. If you've ever played chess, if you've never played chess, then I apologize. This might go over your head a little bit, but uh, hopefully I'll give you enough context. You can understand what's going on. So, um, if you are a chess player and you finally realize, okay, I, I'm a queen, I'm the most powerful piece on the board, and you notice some pawns are grouping together, and they've decided, these pawns have decided to tell themselves the story that the, the, the chess, uh, and I'm going to back up for a second here, uh, some of you may, may, be, may be familiar with the concept of a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game means that when you add up all of the rewards that everyone gets at the end of the game, uh, it all adds up to zero. So some people have a negative outcome and some people have a positive outcome and they all add up to zero. And what that means is your loss is my gain. If I make you worse off in the game, then I'm better off. Now this is true of chess. Chess is a zero sum game. There's one winner and his outcome is a one and there's one winner and, and or one loser and his outcome is a negative one and they add up to zero. 
and there and there's exactly one winner and exactly one loser. And if one person gets a better position in the game, it means the other person is worse off. That's what a zero sum game is. There are there are games that are non-zero sum, which means that uh, the economy is one of them. For example, um, sometimes people cast the economy as a zero sum game, where if if you're richer, it means I must be poorer. But really, people are producing all the time they're producing wonderful things that we all get we all get a little bit richer every time everybody goes to work and so if we see that as a non-zero sum game then we can then we can realize that everybody helps everyone else but chess is very definitely a zero sum game so we're back on the chessboard and you're a queen in this chess game and you look over and you see a, a bunch of pawns discussing the game and they decide that chess is a non-zero-sum game and they can all work together and if you are familiar with chess if you are able to get your pawn across the board to the other side of the board the pawn becomes a queen so these pawns are all discussing you know we just gotta wait till we get on the other side of the board and then we're all gonna be queens one day we're all gonna be the most powerful pieces in the chessboard and uh, and we can help each other and chess is a non-zero-sum game and you as the queen you realize these pawns are deluding themselves chess is a zero-sum game and this is not a normal chessboard it's an infinite chessboard and there never there is no other side of the chessboard all right so where am i going with this that's my narrative where am i going with this uh in order to explain why I told you that story, I'm going to talk about the Book of Mormon. Not the Book of Mormon, the book, but the Book of Mormon, the musical on Broadway. The two guys who made up this musical are uh, famous in the world. They're Matt Stone and Trey Parker. They're famous for coming up with the, with the cartoon South Park. And South Park is quite often a brilliant piece of humor. And it's also, it's even more often, it's an irreverent and even sacrilegious piece of art, right? And these guys have made a, a really good living uh, producing this cartoon. And then they, uh, it, there are even times, and there's been a couple of episodes that feature Latter-day Saint people, and they're depicted as sort of dumb. They're, they're great people, they're sincere, they have really good hearts, everybody loves them, and they're sort of dumb because they don't realize how stupid their beliefs are. That, and uh, these two guys have, they put their heads together, and when they chose to, to compose a play that would go on Broadway, it was Latter-day Saints that they chose to sort of feature as the subjects of their ridicule. And that's why they called the play The Book of Mormon, because these guys are, are very definitely atheists. And the whole idea that God exists and that there are prophets and that we have to forego pleasures of this world in order to have a better eternity is kind of dumb. It's a stupid idea. Now, I wanted to draw that parallel and that contrast because there are two Books of Mormon. There are two Book of Mormons, however you want to pluralize it. There is the Book of Mormon that you and I read, and there is the Book of Mormon musical that's on Broadway. And they're two competing narratives. And one narrative is explained by a vision where uh, there's, a, there's a lone and dreary world. There's a trackless waste. There's something that's wild and waste. And then in there, we see a reward that is desirable to make one happy. And then there's a competing narrative where 
Their life is a chessboard, and it's a zero-sum game, and we have to do the best we can for ourselves. And everyone who is banding together and saying it's not a zero-sum game and that there's some future reward, they're kidding themselves, and they're kind of dumb. And so then the attitude that we should have towards people like that is one of mocking and pointing our fingers. That is the narrative of the people in the great and spacious building. Now, there are atheists who are very respectful of of theists, of of people who believe in God. And there are atheists who have a very highly developed moral code. So in saying this, I am not saying that atheists are bad. Atheists, uh, across the board, they have this attitude. They share this narrative. But I am saying that atheism is that narrative. If atheists are good people, if they have adopted a moral code, they may not know it, they may not be able to say why, but their, their sense of right and wrong, the ethical laws that they live by and they, and they think are inherent in their humanity are in fact a result of the teachings of prophets and the fact that they live in a, in a society that has evolved um, due to the Bible. And they, they owe their very morality to people who have believed in God and who have passed this culture down to them. That is my assertion, at least. And so the fact that they're good people is actually due to the fact that they live in a good culture. It's not due to the fact that they are human beings and that this is born into them. God is the author of all things that are good. And so they actually have not fully embraced the narrative of the great and spacious building, which is a good thing. Even though they don't believe in God, uh, these narratives are diametrically opposed. This is my point. So atheists can be good people. Atheism as uh, as an ethos is diametrically opposed to theism, to the belief in God. And these are our two competing narratives. And the reason that I wanted to tell this story is this is the conflict that exists in the Book of Mormon. Now, the, the children of Israel, they go into the land of Canaan and they're surrounded by people who have religious beliefs of all different stripes. And so their conflict is, how do we tell the worship of the true God from the worship of all these false gods? The worship of fertility and the worship of weather and the worship of war. How do we actually worship the Lord who is the creator, who is from eternity to eternity? unchanging, somebody who actually is outside of what we can do. How do we separate that from the worship of these idols that are the product of our own hands? That's the Old Testament conflict. The conflict in the Book of Mormon, if you think about it, there's Nehor, there's Korahor, there's Gadianton and Kishkumen. There are all these people who are basically nihilists who believe in nothing. And what what uh, Korahor said, and this is from Alma chapter 30, they're called antichrists. And what antichrist means is not somebody, uh, we, we kind of think when we hear the word antichrist, the, the image that's immediately summoned up is somebody in the end of days who is the embodiment of Satan who fights against uh, God and all of his people. Um, sure, but the, the word antichrist more accurately and more generally means someone who so think about what Christ is. Christ means uh, the Messiah. He mean, It means the anointed one. It means the chosen one of God. And an antichrist is somebody who's saying, there is no chosen one of God. The Messiah, the, the Christ, 
is someone who embraces the first narrative, the narrative that Lehi tells in his dream. And an antichrist is someone who says, no, there is another narrative. And that narrative is that we should mock and point fingers over those who believe that there is another side to the chessboard and we're all going to be queens one day. Uh, That's dumb. That's a little bit dumb, and we should make fun of it. And we should live for today, and we should, as, uh, as Lehi says in another place, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Those are the competing narratives of the Book of Mormon. And every Antichrist who comes, who comes about in the Book of Mormon espouses that second narrative, that opposing narrative to the, to the belief of the Nephites, whatever form they might take as the history of the Book of Mormon progresses. There are those who believe the first narrative of Lehi, and there are those who espouse its opposite. And the opposite belief is never expounded upon by any prophet because no God would reveal it to anyone. You have to make up your own narrative. But uh, I think I've done a, a fair job of saying, you know, here's an opposing narrative. And I tried to do it from the perspective of somebody who believed it, right? Because if you're playing chess, you think you're in a zero-sum game. You are in a zero-sum game. And if you're playing an infinite game of chess, then there is no other side of the board. And it would be stupid for a bunch of pawns to uh, group up together and try to work together because they're actually, they should be against each other. They can't actually win by, by, by grouping themselves together. That's stupid in a zero-sum game because if you help somebody else, you've actually hurt yourself. And um, again, if you think that I'm unfairly characterizing atheists, uh, I'm not characterizing atheists. There are many atheists who are wonderful people and who do wonderful things all day long. I'm characterizing atheism. I'm characterizing the belief that we don't need God in our world. And atheists are not, that when they're good people, they're not actually consistent with what they believe. They don't recognize that they have inherited a good belief from their society, from, from theists that came before them. So that's the, that's the contrast between Nephi's vision and Lehi's. Nephi sees a con- concrete, if you, if you notice, uh, there, Jesus Christ doesn't make an appearance in Lehi's dream. And so uh, Nephi sees a concrete and very Christ-centric allegory, but Lehi sees an abstract Old Testament-style metaphor with multiple interpretations, right? This has a temple layer that we can put across it, and it has a creation layer that we we can put across it. You notice that some of the people go across, they fall into this uh, stream. Uh, So it has an exodus, you know, parting of the Red Sea layer that we can, that we can put on top of it. We can, we can insert the history of the children of Israel into Lehi's dream, and, and we can benefit spiritually thereby. And this is appropriate for the two audiences, right? Lehi is talking to Laman and Lemuel and Zoram, the sons of Ishmael. All, they're all Jerusalem Jews who would connect with the prospect of choosing Jehovah or facing eternal exile. So that's another thing is the mist of darkness represents exile. That's what death is for the children of Israel. And uh, Nephi is talking to his posterity. He's, he's including in that in, in his audience, uh, everyone who's going to choose the first narrative already. And so he wants to give them a little bit further light and knowledge that they can take this even farther and benefit even more the way Christ did, right? He took the Old Testament beliefs and without making it pass away, he said, you've been told by those of old time that you shouldn't be, uh, that you should not kill. But I tell you, 
go one step farther. That's what Nephi does with Lehi's dream. So that's that's Nephi's audience is his posterity, including the entire people of the Book of Mormon and the modern saints, all of whom would have a more sophisticated understanding of Christ. So that's chapter eight, and uh, that's that's the that's the vision of Lehi. It's very powerful, and it's very much an Old Testament prophet's vision, and uh, and it can be considered profitably considered separately from Nephi's vision. They're two separate visions, and they have two separate meanings, and the two meanings, while they complement each other, are not equivalent. So let's move on to chapter nine. These the next two chapters we'll cover briefly. Um, chapter nine is an explanation for. Now, now, this is interesting because it is actually an, uh, an explanation for a modern-day event. It's an explanation for the refusal of God to allow Joseph Smith to retranslate portion of the, of the Book of Mormon that he lost. If you're not familiar with this story, when Joseph Smith had, had translated a little over 100 pages of the Book of Mormon, the first part of it, Martin Harris, who'd been financing it, put pressure on him. Let me show this to my wife. Let me show this to people who are making fun of me for being willing to follow your mad scheme, right? And uh, and translate this ancient record. They've, they've been telling me that I'm getting duped. And so I want to show them the proof by, by taking the pages of the manuscript that you've done and showing it to them and, and showing them that we really have something real here. Now, of course, uh, Joseph's got a no, and he got a no, and finally he got an okay, whatever, you know, Joseph, do what you want to do. And so when uh, he loaned those pages to Martin Harris, they never made it back. The obvious, the obvious recommendation for anybody outside observing this situation is, okay, well, if, you're a, if you are, in fact, an inspired translator, go back and translate the, the thing again. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be too hard for you to just translate those 116 pages again. And then that will be the proof that you really are translating an ancient record and not just making up the Book of Mormon from whole cloth. And incidentally, those people are 100% who say that are 100% right. That, that would have been proof. If Joseph Smith had gone back and he had translated that, those 116 pages again, and he'd gotten exactly the same words. And he wasn't, it, um, the, the manuscript pages that he gave to Martin Harris were the only copy. If he wasn't working from some master copy, we can presume that he didn't have those 116 pages memorized word for word. And so if he had produced the same manuscript again, that would have been proof positive that Joseph Smith was translating a record rather than composing one. So uh, we as Latter-day Saints should recognize that. This is, a, this is actually a weakness in our argument that Joseph Smith was not allowed to go back and translate those. So sometimes we see this story as a strength. Oh, Joseph Smith, wasn't it wise of, of God to, to inspire Nephi to keep two records? But somebody from outside the church would look at this and say, well, that's very convenient that as soon as he loses the record, it happens to be right at the place where God provided two records, you know, uh, very clever of Joseph Smith to come up with that excuse. And and they're right about that. It does look very convenient. And so the point is, there is no proof. The Book of Mormon does not contain in itself, it does not contain proof. Now I want to qualify that statement. Um, and again, 
uh, well, I actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with that on today's lesson. So just remember that, that point. The Book of Mormon does not contain proof, um, it, which isn't 100% true, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain why it's not 100% true in a, in a few minutes. Um, but so this chapter nine is sort of the explanation that, that Nephi feels inspired. He's kept a secular record or a mostly secular record. And now he wants to keep a mostly spiritual record. And he's explaining, you know, I don't I have no idea why I would do it twice, but I just feel like the whispering of God in my heart is that I should do this. And, um, and, and now later on, we understand why it's that Part of that was going to be lost. And rather than allow Joseph Smith to retranslate those pages and provide proof, God knew that he had already covered this eventuality. And he, there had to be a consequence to Joseph Smith. The consequence was you have an opportunity that is now lost and can never be regained to have this manuscript included in the final text of the Book of Mormon. Now, the, the rationale given for that is that the people who, to whom Martin Harris, uh, among whom the, the records, those lost pages fell, uh, the, presu the presumption was they would change them and then say, Joseph Smith, you tried to retranslate it, but really uh, you got it wrong. And so therefore they would, have, they would have found some discrepancies that they themselves introduced. And that is possible that they would have done that. But um, I'm not sure that that was God's rationale. I think it was just the consequence to Joseph Smith for not listening. Uh, in any case, that's chapter nine, and uh, it is faith-promoting, and it's also convenient. Again, this is the kind of thing that depends on your narrative, and you choose the narrative. You choose whether this fruit is desirable to make you happy or whether it's a little bit dumb. Those are choices that we all make every day. And when we don't make the choice once for all spiritual things and then stick to it perfectly, there are times, as you see in the narrative that, that Lehi tells, where people arrive at the tree and then they feel ashamed. So at one point they make one choice and at, and at another point they, they doubt that choice a little bit. And we all of us are susceptible to that and we have to be wary of it. And that's the message of Lehi's dream. So chapter 10 now, uh, first of all, I want to make one point, and that is that Nephi says, I'm not relating all the words of my father. There's a ton to this time period that we just have no account of. And all of this, as he says, was done in a, as my father dwelt in a tent in the valley of Lemuel. So there are three days uh, journey from Jerusalem. They're in the wilderness. Uh, I want to make another point. So the, the image that we get of the great and spacious building. It is a tall building. It has many doors and windows, and it is built, as it were, on the air. Now, if you've ever heard of a place called Shebam, it is a city in Yemen that is called uh, the Manhattan of the desert. The, they are mud-based buildings that are 100 feet or more tall that, are, that arise out of the desert that are 1,700 years old. And some people uh, date some of the structures as far back as 300 years before Christ. Now, the reason I bring up Shebam is uh, they are tall buildings that are that was part of an ancient city, and the first few floors are windowless. And looking at it from the desert would have been much like seeing a building sitting on the air. You would have seen lights in the upper floors, and these buildings in some cases are 10 
floors or more tall. I'm not saying that there was an ancient, uh, that Lehi would have ever seen the city of Shebam or a similar city, but it's possible that there was a similar place around there. It's possible that, it, that there wasn't. But we do know that, that Lehi was in the process of becoming what is known today as a nomad. He had left a civilized life. He'd left a life where their, their food, their sustenance, was derived on agriculture, and now he was arriving in a place where they became basically hunter-gatherers. They became nomads, and they became uh, savages from one from one perspective, right? They were living off the land. They were hunter-gatherers, and hunter wherever uh, people who live on agriculture encounter hunter-gatherers, there's one result, and that is the hunter-gatherers are wiped out. We've seen it over and over in world history. And so that's why, as you read, um, as you read the book of First Nephi, you recognize they had to, they they couldn't have fires because the fires would have drawn civilized peoples from the lands they were, they were traveling through to come find out what was going on and protect their lands. These guys were these guys were nomads wandering through the wilderness and living off the land by hunting and gathering and carrying seeds and crops and you know they planned at one day to establish themselves in a permanent base but it was years between their two civilizations and they had left a city behind and so uh one more layer to the narrative of lehi's dream is the narrative of a city dweller becoming a hunter-gatherer becoming a nomad and so he's looking from the the joy that he's found in the wilderness he's found this new creation where god is willing to talk to him as he travels away from the city and and arrives at a mountaintop you know the temple of god the prophet arriving at a place where god is willing to meet him and he looks back at the city and he sees this tall building where uh everyone is laughing at him and pointing the finger and that is the that is the very narrative that Laman and Lemuel, it wasn't that Laman and Lemuel, uh, they hated their father or they didn't want to be happy. It was that they had a totally different narrative. They were still in the city. The reason I bring up the city versus uh, nomad idea is that we see it again in Genesis. Uh, in chapter four, Cain and Abel have two offerings. Cain is a tiller of the ground, if you remember, and Abel is a keeper of flocks. So somebody who's a keeper of flocks, that fits, that's a description that fits very well the wandering prophets of the Old Testament, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were itinerant. They were were nomadic uh, keepers of flocks. They were herdsmen. And and, uh, the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were also nomadic, right? And so this was seen as a more pure form of worship, of life, of living, of getting close to God than living in a city and, and relying on someone else raising crops or raising uh, animals to sell to you. So specialization of economy, as the economy got more and more advanced and more civilized, they felt like they were getting farther and farther away from God. And so this is sort of a, a, a secular layer on top of this is that... Um, there's a Cain versus Abel, nomad versus city culture layer that we can that we can realize is happening here. And uh, to reinforce this idea, I recommend another uh, Dr. Seeley article to you. This time it's written by uh, Dr. Seeley and a man named Fred Wolf. 
And the title of that is, How Could Jerusalem, That Great City, Be Destroyed? And in this, uh, Dr. Seeley and Woods, they, they sort of explore uh, the fact that Laman and Lemuel don't accept the vision of Lehi that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and they give six reasons why uh, a typical Jerusalemite from that time period would not have believed the words of Lehi and the words of Jeremiah that Jerusalem will be destroyed. They would have thought it was impossible that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And they give uh, six very interesting reasons, very convincing ones. And I think that that article sort of describes perfectly the, uh, the difference, the contrast between a city dweller and a nomad in their, in their worldview. And so Lehi is giving his, his vision is very much the perspective of a nomad. Uh, and it's a perspective that he hopes that everyone else will adopt right? It's, it's a perspective that God should be center, central in our lives and people and the, the love of society and of being around a city, right? To have a city mentality should not be central in our lives. So back to chapter 10, um, Nephi tells us this is, this is just one of several visions of, of several groups of things that my father told us while he dwelt in a tent. And, uh, the reason I said all of that stuff is that that verse is actually quite significant. My father and my father dwelt in a tent. It's one of the I think it might be the shortest verse in the uh, in the Book of Mormon, but it it actually carries a great deal of meaning. It carries all the meaning that I've just explained and perhaps even more. So and then he also says that my father told taught us about the Messiah, right? And this is very plain language. So Nephi relates Lehi's prophecies of the scattering and the gathering of Israel, the mortal ministry of the Messiah, and he does that in very plain language. And in verse 6, he says, Mankind is in a lost and a fallen state, and he reveals clearly that the Messiah is not going to be a military Messiah. Here uh, in verse 6 and in verse 11, he explains the Jews are going to kill the Messiah, and then he's going to come back to life. He explains the nature of the atonement. So this, in, in this way, we learn that Lehi had a clear understanding of the ministry of Christ. And it's possible and even probable that there were other Old Testament prophets who had this same kind of view. And it may be that because that view contradicted the narrative of the, the Israelite culture that they just didn't record it. They weren't willing to entertain the idea that the Messiah would be something other than a, a Davidic king who would be militarily successful. The final part of chapter 10 is Nephi's testimony about personal revelation. Now, he doesn't quite say, I received personal revelation. That is in verse 1 of chapter 11, but we got to wait until next week to, to hear it. So the, the final part of chapter 10 is him saying, I desired to know. The prophet, my father, has told me something. He's given me, uh, first of all, he's given me a vision uh, where he expounds his narrative about whether I should believe in God, how I should see myself in the story of our lives. And that's what a story is, really. Right? Some the most powerful storytellers are ones who give us an interpretation for the events we see. And after we get that story, we can't see those events in any other way because that narrative is so powerful that we choose thereafter to see the events in that light. And it has a lot to do with our personal preferences and with our, our mindset that we've chosen. Do I see my do I want to see myself as a victim? Then very well, I'm going to go out 
and I'm going to find a narrative that reinforces that. But what Lehi says is, you are you are children of God to act and not be acted upon. And so therefore, I'm going to give you a narrative that reinforces that view of yourself, where you can choose uh, a fruit that is desirable to make you happy. You can make your way to it through great difficulty if need be. And you can come out of exile, and you can come across the the uh, the river and the waters will part for you and you can find a rod of iron and an unshakable source of stability that will carry you there if you are willing to make that choice and if not you might find yourself back in the city back among the people of the descendants the spiritual descendants of Cain who are tilling the ground rather than the the nomads out in the desert willing to travel far from civilization to encounter their god uh, so this this is these are the subliminal uh, I want to say subliminal but the the subtextual messages of Lehi's dream as he relates them and then Nephi adds the admonition I wanted to know these things and so I started to ask God about them I started to think uh, it might it might be possible that God would talk to me as well I wanted to make one more point about this and that is if Joseph Smith were composing the Book of Mormon. I would think, I would assume, that he would have his main characters talk about how important it was to take a prophet's word unquestioningly. Instead, what he has is a prophet, and, and as we'll read in verse or chapter 11, uh, he has a prophet who says, you know, I heard the words from a prophet, and I wanted to find out for myself. And then I prayed, and then I did. And then uh, my brothers asked me about my father's dream, and I told them, I didn't say, oh, well, here is, here's my vision, and you should accept it without questioning. Instead, I said, why don't you ask God, because he answered me, and he'll answer you too. Now, this is an interesting teaching for a man if he wants people to accept his, his words unquestioningly. It's not that curious if he actually believes that God will respond, right? So this would this is a this is a part of the Book of Mormon. Number one, it's a promise from God that we don't have to take a prophet's word for it, not forever at least, right? Um, we do have also, on the other side of that, we do have the, the account that Lehi spent a long time in the wilderness traveling before he actually uh, had an effectual prayer that led him to the Tree of Life. There was a long time spent in the wilderness. Nevertheless, uh, so there are these two aspects for personal revelation, right? One is that we have to wait for it, but the other is that we have no excuse. The prophet doesn't say, take my word for it and just go. The prophet says, why haven't you asked God? Why haven't you received your own account? I did. And just because I'm a prophet doesn't mean you can't. You can be a prophet too. As Moses said, uh, I would that all Israel were prophets. And this is what Nephi is saying right here. There's, there's no reason that I should be special. The only reason I'm special is because I was willing to put in the work and ask God. Now, uh, I struggle with this. I struggle with this in my own life because I don't get anywhere near the amount of revelation that I would like to receive. Uh, but th that's why I'm making such a big deal about talking about it is because I, I really want Nephi's words to be true. So as we, as we finish, I want to say one more word about the Antichrist, right? The Antichrist Korahor was a man who said, he didn't say there will be no Christ. If you, if you go back to Alma chapter 30 again, and you read what he said, uh, he says that 
the uh, that you can't know that there will be a Christ, right? Because uh, we're still, I believe, at that time, 90 years before the birth of Christ. He says, you can't know about the future birth of a being that, that hasn't been born yet. I'm not saying there will be no Christ. I'm saying you don't know that there will be. So that's what that's what that particular Antichrist did. He said, look, we can't know it. It turned out that he knew all along that he was lying. But an Antichrist doesn't have to be a liar. It just has to be somebody who chooses the narrative that that life is a zero-sum game, that helping each other is a little bit dumb, uh, banding together is a little bit dumb, believing in God, believing that there is a, that there will one day be a new creation and that we'll be, we will be renewed is a little bit dumb and is worthy of mockery. And we have to mock it because there's something empty about our lives the way they are. There's no meaning beyond the current existence that we see before us. Uh, recently, there was an interesting and, and kind of funny uh, exchange at the beginning of the Golden Globe Awards where the host, he said to everyone, uh, before he really roasted the the Hollywood celebrities, he said, uh, you know, remember as I'm saying these things, they're just jokes. And this is what he added. He said, we're all going to die soon and there is no sequel. So he betrayed in that statement, he betrayed what narrative that he believes in. He believes that, you know, look, take it. And I, and I agree with this sentiment, you know, take don't take yourself so seriously that you can't take a joke. But, but the point he was making was the reason you should not take yourself so seriously is because you're not, uh, you're not eternal beings. Your life is going to be short and insignificant, and therefore don't take yourself so seriously. And I would say the exact opposite. Don't take yourself so seriously because life is eternal. So don't take a momentary joke or momentary events so seriously because you are an eternal being. And because you do choose the narrative where there will be a new creation. And that makes all the difference. That makes everything so much more meaningful. There is no, ultimately, there is no meaning to a life that has no continuity. If there's no life after death, uh, I, have, I have a friend who is an atheist and a good person, right? Uh, not in every way, but um, he describes himself as a moral relativist, in fact. And, uh, but, he, but he is uh, an avowed atheist. And I asked him, I said, don't you have a hard time feeling like life is meaningless? And he said, no, on the contrary, because this is the only time I will live, it has all the, it has very much meaning. It has all of the meaning. And at the time I accepted that response, I thought, oh, that makes sense. But lately I've been thinking about that, realizing it has all of the meaning, which is exactly uh, zero which it, it has all of nothing. It has, it has the entire meaning for my existence, which after I'm gone will be reduced to the memories people have of me. And then as soon as they are gone, then it's really reduced to nothing. Ultimately, my life is meaningless and therefore I can do what I want. Now, a lot uh, to their credit, a lot of atheists don't follow their beliefs to their natural conclusion. And that's a good thing because the natural conclusion is, it, there really is no good and bad. There's no reason to be good over being bad. And the the narrative of, of Lehi is actually that this voice you have within you, this, this feeling that you have that you want to be good, that actually is a true voice. And 
the the idea that you should separate yourselves from the the people who want glory and fame and and money and and the lusts of this world and go out into the wilderness and find your god and then count on him to keep his promises and create you anew that's a narrative worth following and it has all of the meaning in the universe and that you are a child of god these are the narratives that we compete that compete within us every day and I, I believe that all of us, because you're listening and because I'm speaking, all of us are choosing the narrative of Lehi over the narrative of Laman and Lemuel and those who would follow them spiritually. But as we saw in, in Lehi's dream itself, those narratives keep competing. We can arrive at the tree and then we can be ashamed. We can also, and this is very important, we can also be lost in the mist and we can find our way to the rod of iron. There were people in this very dream who did both. So you'll have the experience of both in your life. If you feel like you're in the great and spacious building right now, don't give up. And if you feel like you're at the tree of life right now, don't rest on your laurels. Every day, make the choice to choose the narrative that brings you eternal joy, that helps you to recognize the tree of life as, a, as the fruit that is desirable to make one happy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.